Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. I'd like to say g'day Nina, I'd like to say g'day Kim, but I'm afraid I can't because I'm alone today. So let's jump straight into it, okay? Probably the first thing I want to talk to you about is on 6 December, we're running a special briefing for all our clients on the changes to the workers' comp legislation that are coming through, which are really profound and will have a major impact on premium. So you'll get something from us very shortly talking to you about that, but make sure that you show interest immediately and get there. Let's jump to the first case of the day. Gee, my head's bright here today, isn't it? Interesting case of George's and Elders, which is a Northern Territory case, and it looks at a discrete piece of legislation in the Northern Territory that also exists in kind in Queensland, but also has similar versions in South Australia, Tasmania and the ACT, and that is an entitlement to receive long service leave on retirement. Everywhere else, you receive an entitlement just by the service of time, not by a time of entitlement arising on when you retire or when you are lawfully retiring. But in Northern Territory, there isn't clarity about what retirement age is. And Miss George has relied upon, she's 60 years of age, that she had hit the preservation age under her superannuation and therefore was entitled to retire. She was entitled to about $20,000. And what Elders said is, well, no, this legislation that came through long service leave was before superannuation laws came into event, which makes retirement age at around about 67, and elders were successful. So this is a case which looks, sorry, pension, Australian pension on superannuation. This looks at a case that is discrete to the Northern Territory, but it just does remind you in each state and territory to have a bit of a look because when you're in South Australia, Tasmania or the ACT, there is a specified retirement age in the legislation that tells you when there is entitlement to be paid. Elsewhere, it's purely on the time at which you've served. Let's jump on to our next case. Joan's case, look, just a fascinating case. This was a case where serious injury was caused to an employee. They were knocked uh, knocked unconscious by a a tube while working on a lathe. Yeah, I think it was the CEO or the owner was charged and ended up with a $140,000 fine in the five-year community correction order because he came along, saw them working on a lathe on these pipes, told them to hurry up, actually turned on the lathe when he knew that the manner in which the pipes were being placed on the lathe was inherently danger. The pipe swung around because it was not secured and struck the apprentice in the head and the apprentice was then placed into an induced coma and was very seriously injured. What's key about this case is that the company itself received a fine of $2.1 million. That's the highest fine under reckless endangerment in Australia, and it reflects both the regulator point of view and the court's view that the failure to actually stop risk, which is a known risk which is likely to cause serious harm, is something that will be taken incredibly seriously from here on in. So before this, we we're looking at 750, 800,000 as the maximum tariff. It's gone up by 250%. And that is something that all of Australia needs to know about because when it comes to determining sentencing, courts are now allowed to look at comparable jurisdictions throughout Australia in respect of reckless endangerment. So fascinating case 
a really big warning for all of our staff. And what's important is, once again, a director has been charged, not, and it is a director who was involved in the breach, okay? Now, as I've said to you before, and had Nina been here rather than the koala who sits to my left, she would have said, yeah, but it's going to get worse, Andrew. There's absolutely no doubt in the future it won't be directors who were involved in the breach, but because their governance responsibilities will be liable, and she would be right. Let's jump to another case, okay? And again, this is a fascinating case which talks about sudden changes in tariffs. Now, tariffs are what is awarded, whether it's in damages or penalties. In Lung's case, this was a woman who suffered from her manager sexual harassment by slapping on buttocks, occasional touching and sexualised commentary. She complained and the manager was sacked. Shortly after the manager was sacked, other people started wondering out loud why the manager was sacked and actually placed pressure upon her. As a result of that, she resigned and shortly after she resigned, the manager was reinstated and she brought a claim. Now, she went to VCAT and VCAT is a place which can be a bit all over the place depending on who the members are. They said that despite of producing medical evidence as the impact, it wasn't sufficient to generate any claim of special damages, that is loss of earnings, and that it was a relatively mild case and in any event the wrong had been taken away and therefore gave an award of general damages of $10,000. Now, anybody who knows anything about sexual harassment and damages knows since 2015, 2015 when the full federal court said that sort of damages is just pointless, would have known this was wrong. I went to the Victorian Supreme Court and the head of the employment area in the Victorian Supreme Court resubmitted it back to VCAT after setting out the appropriate principles and really castigating the earlier decision. And as a result of which she got 110,000 general damages and she ended up with special damages, I think, in the vicinity of around about 30,000 for lost employment. What's important about this case is that is the nature of the sexual harassment was touch-based sexual harassment as well as commentary. This is at the very end, the very lower end of what the general damages will be. So there's no doubt now that touch-based sexual harassment at its lower end, which is occasional slapping of budding and casual touching, so not gross sexual assault, 110,000 is the bottom end of the general damages tariff. But that's something you just got to think about, isn't it? Like it's a fascinating case and it shows how far since Richard and Oracle, which is the full federal court case, this has gone. Richard and Oracle, there was 100,000 damages for highly sexualised commentary, suggestive behaviour to an executive level person and placing that person in compromising position. So Lung's case is now saying, okay, he is just a person who works in a day-to-day environment who's being slapped and touched. You're going to pay a big price. Let's jump to our next case. There's a lot of cases on today, isn't there? I'm sorry about that, but it's been a really busy week. Benioff Racing was about a worker who drove a vehicle that carried horses. He was employed in two places, one by Benioff and second by Taz Racing. So he would drive the vehicle for Benioff, come to the races, and then he drove for Taz Races. On his way home from Sydney to Hobart, after working for Taz Races for two days, there was an accident and he suffered damages and he claimed against Benyol saying, well, look, I was going to be working at Benyol the next morning and I had to get there anyway. And he was awarded compensation because the court said, although there, this was, there was an interval between when he worked with Benyol 
and then he worked with Taz. He had to be there the next day. He had to get home from Sydney, and as a result of which, it was part of his work with Benyol. Again, you might think the workers' comp cases we give you are sort of obscure, but it's to remind you that work for workers' compensation is a different sort of law to what we'd say work is for safety law or work is for employment law. If you can see a suitable connection between what the work is being done and work for workers' compensation, it will be compensable. He clearly would not be, sorry, Benyol would clearly not be in breach of any safety obligations, nor would there be any workplace issues that attach to this particular driving that workers' comp extends out and reaches. So that's why I've got this case today, to show you the greater flexibility of what is a workplace for the purpose of workers' compensation law. All right, next case. Here we are, racing through them. What a case, okay? Here was a machine that made cardboard boxes. It was in their specialty division of Visi. The machine had jammed five times. There was a process that was set out by Visi as to what a worker was to do, and that was to turn off the machine to stop a blockage. Instead of that, the worker inserted a piece of cardboard, the machine drew the cardboard, and the worker's hand in the machine causing substantial injury. They find, I think, when I when I think, I think I'm saying 275, when I look at my cheat sheet here, oh, gee, I'll have to go over a couple of pages. We've got on, and 275, I'm right. But the point of this case is it's not new law. And when Nina and I looked at it, we said, God, this is just a classic case of there is a way to do it safely. It's been described how to do it safely, but no one trained this worker. Now, remember, when you induct someone, you induct somebody into the business, to the workplace, and then to the machine or the operation the person's carried out. And they cannot start doing that role until you are satisfied they are competent because reasonable practicability says you must identify all hazards in the work that you're doing, you must determine the level of risk, and you must introduce the control. And the primary control is for the person to be trained in the system, to be inducted and competent in the system so that the hazard doesn't create a risk for the worker. So a really good case because it tells you what is the requirement around someone undertaking an operation, they must be trained and competent in that operation to identify the hazards and manage those in accordance with the instruction of the workplace. So let's go to the next case and see what happens when you don't. So JBS is in our meat industry group. It's a meat industry client. There was a worker who was going to test for the moisture in large bales of hay. They were 700 kilograms. They had been packed in this occasion six high, which was three higher than they should have been. But there was no work instruction around how to test bales of hay for moisture. But clearly going in and pushing around at a bale of hay when they're stacked high runs the risk of them collapsing. And in fact, they did and cause serious physical injury and psychological injury to the worker. But JBS didn't have a process and therefore the work that was under being undertaken couldn't have been undertaken safely. And they'd had a prior conviction where bales of hay as a result of moisture had been burnt. So this was their second related conviction. But we saw in the Visi case, do have a role, must train someone, ensure they're competent. JBS could never make someone competent because there was no system. And as a result of that, the employee was doing something which was inherently dangerous. And I think JBS ended up with a fine of around about $300,000 as a result of it. 
All right. My next case, really very simple case. We're only doing this because it's the first case on flexible workplace since the change of the legislation. The worker in this case worked one day at work and the remainder of the week working from home. They had trouble sleeping. They had a not a diagnosed disability but problems with sleep and as a result of that raised in writing with her employer that she'd like to wake up later and come to work later on a Monday. It was rejected without explanation. In fact, Ms Quirk had not worked 12 months, so the first test had been failed. So this was at a hearing, a dispute hearing, but they went on to say quite clearly if it was 12 months, the decision was wrong. The decision had to justify the business reason for not doing it and no justification was given. More importantly, and the key part about this is when you talk about what is a disability under Section 351 of the Act, it is not only a diagnosed disability but a symptom of a disability which gives rise to the right of seeking flexible work. So in other words, the fact that a person says to you, look, I'm having trouble sleeping, this is how it impacts me, is sufficient to trigger the basis for seeking flexible workplace, okay? So really a good little interesting case. It's the first one since the change in the legislation, so we're bringing it to you, but it is what it is. All right, our main topic, and really in our education sector, and I ran into one of our friends today from Yarra Valley Grammar, so hi, and the coffee was good for me too. This is about disability discrimination, particularly in the education area, and can I say to you it applies throughout all workplaces, and it comes from a High Court decision in Perves. In this case, this was a teacher at the Blackburn English Language School. He had suffered a stroke in his spine, which was unwork-related. Two years after, he had made some recovery, and his doctor wrote to the school with a return-to-work program saying, look, he can return to work, working a few days a week, four hours a day, in an observational role, and as the teacher's hand and over a period of time can possibly return to full-time work. There is no evidence in this case that they would never be able to return to full-time work, nor is there any evidence that he definitely would be able to return to full-time work. The principal relied on a past medical report prior to this saying he's totally unfit from work and also said, look, what adjustments can we make because of the disability the teacher had at that time? Can I just say at this stage... Any lawyer practising in this area would have said a two-year absence and a lack of clarity around final capacity would have made any argument of discrimination law based on disability incredibly unlikely to succeed. Well, it did succeed. And it succeeded because what the court said is when you look at what reasonable adjustments were, you look at what is the cost, what is the impact on other teachers or other people involved, how practical is it, those adjustments were reasonable that were being offered to be made and there was no evidence that he would not be able to return to full-time work. I've got to tell you, this is a really concerning judgment, okay? And it's concerning judgment for a number of reasons and that is this was not a workplace injury. There was no obligations to return to work in the classic sense of a workers' compensation claim. And an absence of this period of time places such a financial and structural burden on a business It's not reasonable. If it is appealed, I suspect the appeal will be successful. But it does show you what the risks are around disability discrimination as they sit now. And the law is at large. We've probably dealt with half a dozen cases like this over the last five or six months. And candidly, 
all of us worry about what are reasonable expectations around non-work-related injuries of a prolonged absence. This case, I think, is stretching it too far. But we'll wait and see. We'll see if it's appealed. Unfortunately, discrimination claims are rarely appealed. That's because they do such significant brand damage in any in any appeal process. But wait and see. Watch this space. All right, let's go to the next one. Here we are. Here is the case study. Okay, and I don't normally read these, and I have a very little voice, so you're going to have to tolerate me having a few drinks in between. Angus was a theatre technician at Yandoit Regional Hospital, YRH. He completed his shift at 11pm on 2 June 2023. His boss, Olga, on the afternoon shift asked how he's going to get home and he said he was driving. Olga said, be careful, it is a Saturday night and you need to be careful of the drunks. Sage advice, I would have thought. Olga was aware of the standard work order referred to below and was a health and safety representative involved in reporting risks regarding safety issues of staff to get to the car park from the hospital on afternoon and night shifts. The staff car park was down a lane, 100 metres from the back door of the hospital. The lane was a public lane used by local residents. There was a standard work order for afternoon and night shift employees to bunch together to be escorted to the car park by security. That was because there had been numerous incidents of staff being attacked in the laneway by drunks as the end of the lane connected to the back door of the local pub in the main street. It was Angus's first afternoon shift. He had not been trained about the work order and no one had told him. He walked past several employees milling around at the back door, one of whom said, why don't you wait for us? Angus laughed and said, the missus is waiting. And they laughed. The safety reports the executive and board highlighted there had been two sexual assaults and one serious physical assault, along with numerous threats and other scary confrontations in the lane over the prior 12 months, and the CEO had hired security guards to escort staff. They had petitioned the local council for improving lighting and to close the lane. There had been an additional attempted sexual assault following the hiring of security when a nurse, unaware of the work order, rushed to get home to her children, ran down the lane and was confronted by a drunken criminal. She managed to elude him and run back to the hospital, but the assailant had grabbed her to close and tried to touch her inappropriately while saying vile comments about his intentions. Both the CEO and the board had been told by police that the use of the lane was a risk. The lane was dark and they couldn't commit to being present when staff left on afternoon and night shift and arrived on day shift. On the way to the car park, halfway down the dark lane, no lights on the lane, three drunken men jumped Angus, started punching and kicking him, and as he fell to the ground, he hit his head on an exposed drainage pipe, causing his instant death. At the time of the fatal assault of Angus, the council had not improved lighting nor closed the lane. There you go, there's the facts. Had Angus survived, and also this is a question under the Wrongs Act, if the claim was made by the family for dependency in the event of death, was Angus at work for the purpose of workers' compensation and common law damages? So pretty important question, isn't it? He had left work. There was a staff car park. Let's go back to our workers' comp case, that we, the Benyol case that we talked about just earlier. Clearly, there was an expectation from the hospital that for a person to get to the car park, they would have to walk there. So unquestionably, for the purpose of workers' compensation and therefore the Wrongs Act, this was part of his working duties and therefore the death benefits claim under the Wrongs Act and 
the workers' compensation claim, if he didn't die, would have been well-founded and there would have been no concerns about the interval that arose between leaving the back door of the hospital and attending the car park. Can I say this is a huge issue? Because there are common expectations. This isn't a journey claim issue. There are common expectations for a number of us, like I leave here and I go to a car park which is a block and a half away. It is on the edge of Chinatown. When I go there, it is not uncommon for people to be drunk and drug-affected that I pass when I leave late at night, a real concern. In my past firm, one young lawyer was punched and our office was one block down from King Street late on a Friday night. The obligation arises quite clearly to provide layers of protection and education around those issues. Next question, was it a workplace for the purpose of safety law and does it have to be? Right. Different issue, isn't it? Because the definition of a workplace under safety law is more confined than it is under workers' compensation. But once again, given the fact that work provide a place to park your car, therefore invested a cost in providing you a place to park your car, under safety law, it would be a workplace. If the mistake, if I was wrong about that, Okay, so I think that's a good argument under safety law, but maybe not a winning argument. But if a regulator charged the hospital and the CEO with workplace manslaughter in Victoria or industrial manslaughter as there's no one elsewhere, then the fact that death arose outside of a workplace doesn't change the entitlement to bring the indictment. It's a pretty important thing because for every other charge, right up to reckless endangerment, it must be a death that occurred on a workplace, okay? But I think because the car park is provided by the hospital and there is an expectation by the hospital that workers will use the car park and is one owned and provided by the hospital, it's probably a workplace for safety law. Once again, I hope people are hearing alarm bells. We've written this case study to highlight what this area of risk is. What actions should have the hospital taken, which is question three? Well, unquestionably, they should not have allowed workers under any circumstances to travel down that lane and found an alternative route or placed a car park in a different way. They should have, without doubt, if they were using security guards, have a security guard located in the lane if that was the only means of access. And that security guard or security guards would have ensured that people were appropriately supervised down the lane and they should have ensured there was appropriate lighting in the lane. Finally, and if we go back to the busy case, they had to make sure that everybody was trained and competent and aware of the work order in relation to travelling down that lane. But this is a structural issue of risk. If you can't fix the problem, let's go back to reasonable practicability. If the obligation of the employer is to do everything that is reasonably practical, they have to identify the hazard. The hazard is people are in a dark lane, tripping over in the lane and hurting themselves. If the person, if Angus had have tripped over and hit his head on the pipe, he would have died anyway, so big risk. But also being attacked, given the proximity of the hotel and the time at which people were there, there is a high likelihood that people would be attacked. So the risk was not high, it was severe. So was there a hazard? Yes. What were the hazards? Lack of lighting, the presence of dangerous people, the presence of dangerous infrastructure like excluding pipes. So the risk is extreme. What is the control? What this council, so what this hospital did was say, 
We've asked the council. We've created a work order. After that, we can't be responsible. What absolute rubbish. When the risk is severe, if you can't provide an appropriate control, you have to stop it. What they should have done here, unquestionably, if they couldn't control it, is stop the use of the car park. That's what they should have done. So when we face, could Olga face display action? What's Olga's obligation? Well, she's an employee, not an officer, so her obligation is to exercise reasonable care to prevent injury to herself or others. So what's reasonable care? A competent person doing her job. Her obligations in HSR are indemnified. She has no liability under the Act in respect of her HSR obligations. But her obligations and employees seized with the knowledge she had was to ensure that Angus had the knowledge he needed to be as safe as possible. So she's in breach of Section 25. What about disciplinary charges? Well, yes, she was aware of a lawful and reasonable direction. If we go to Regulation 1.7 of the Fair Work Regulations, a failure to comply with the lawful and reasonable direction is serious misconduct. She most definitely faces disciplinary consequences. Given the fact of the death, given the breach that occurred, it's likely that would be a final warning not termination, Olga did give some sort of hint of the risk that was involved. Could the CEO be charged, and if so, under what provision? I think the CEO is looking squarely at reckless endangerment. Could be, could be industrial manslaughter. Let's try industrial manslaughter. What are the elements that? There was Angus's death, so there's one. Two, the CEO had a duty of care, section 144, as exists in all due diligence provisions but an objective test in every other state but Victoria where it is subjective. He subjectively knew of the risk. He took actions knowing his duty to take those actions to try and mitigate that risk. But his failure was gross. His failure was, I know this risk is alive now, I know it is ongoing, I even know after I gave a direction that there has been another one and I've done nothing really to prevent that from occurring. I think a regulator may charge him with workplace manslaughter in Victoria, industrial manslaughter elsewhere, but would likely drop that back to reckless endangerment. But he would not escape a reckless endangerment charge. Why? Because the test in reckless endangerment is very straightforward. Is there a knowledge of serious risk of injury? Absolutely. So they had the knowledge of what was those risks, what were the hazards and the risks that went with it. Was the CEO indifferent to those risks? Yeah, he did some things about it, but that doesn't change a carelessness or indifference. It is to do the right thing, and he clearly didn't do the right thing. He is highly exposed, and given the attitude of courts, he's likely to face a prison term as a result of that, although it may be one that's suspended. Could the board be charged, and if so, under what provision? Yes, once again, if there was industrial manslaughter, the board would have a liability. I don't think there's a lot of information which would give the board a huge amount of risk at the moment, particularly because regulators are only prosecuting officers who were involved in this particular breach. But there is a risk to the board for both reckless endangerment, Section 144 primary duty breach and industrial manslaughter. I think it's unlikely. What would the hospital be charged with? The answer is they would be charged with exactly the same thing that the CEO was charged with because they are attributed with the CEO's action. So if the CEO was charged with industrial manslaughter, so would the hospital be. If he was charged with reckless endangerment, so would the hospital. What would the penalty likely be in these cases, given the most recent case that I just gave you? You'd have to expect they'd be at risk of something in the vicinity of one and a half to $2 million. 
There you go, guys. That's it for this week. Now, I want you to remember we are running the workers' compensation breakfast. You are going to get something on it really shortly. I do need your thumbs up today because I feel really lonely. The koala feels incredibly lonely. Thanks for watching. Cheers. Cheers.